Welcome, disturbed minds, to the ominous threshold of Thanksgiving week, where shadows dance in the corners of reality. As the veil between worlds thins, we beckon you to a feast of fear like never before. Brace yourselves, for the chill of terror will weave its fingers through the fabric of your consciousness. This week, we dive into the abyss with not one, not two, but five tales that will curdle the very marrow in your bones. A symphony of whispers from the other side awaits, each story a haunting melody crafted by the hands of the macabre. No longer shall you find solace in a comforting introduction. Nay, disturbed minds, the narratives will claw their way into your reality without preamble. A name, an author, and then the plunge into the abyss. Join us in this ghastly journey where the unknown lurks behind every syllable and the darkness unfurls like a ravenous beast. Let the absence of an introduction amplify the dread, heighten the suspense, and drag you deeper into the tapestry of horror. Remember, dear listeners, to share in the dread. The link between us and the shadows grows stronger with each pair of ears that succumb to the tales of the twisted and the terrifying. We express our deepest gratitude to those who have dared to venture into the disturbed mind realm. Your presence adds an electric charge to the air, and your nightmares become the canvas for our spectral art. As we embark on this Thanksgiving journey, may your holiday be drenched in both fear and gratitude. Until the shadows converge again next Monday, stay disturbed, stay intrigued, and most importantly, stay tuned. Thank you for letting the darkness consume you. Until next time. Banshee's Cry by Baron Fist I felt the presence of the woman in white before I heard her call, my body suddenly plagued by shudders and a sense of dark foreboding. The fear, the lament and the pain ached through my ragged body, telling me she will be with us soon, to sing to us the song of the damned. Short, shallow breaths escaped my broken lungs as I felt her move closer to the ramshackle hut I call home. Suddenly, she let loose her screeching wail, sending me to the floor in a heap, sobbing and soaked in my own fear-induced urine. I now knew what my role was. My fate was sealed by the call of the banshee, the cry of the woman in white. I shakily brought myself to my feet and slowly made my way to the door. My hand reached out and grasped the rusted metal handle. The door swung open, rusted hinges creaking, and for the first time in my bleak life, I saw the banshee, the summoner of my kind to their demise or fortune. The woman's dress was so white so pristine it illuminated the perpetual night of the Black King's land. As my decrepit eyes ran over her, I was taken aback by her unyielding beauty. The white dress hung loose and translucent, showing her womanly curves and taut breasts. If my body wasn't so corrupted and diseased, I would feel a masculine hunger. But all that ran through me was a sense of longing for a touch of humanity again. Her wailing song stopped abruptly as I made my way to her. Her glowing white eyes stared at me as I kneeled before her otherworldly presence. Her disgust was palpable as she took in the sight of my wretched figure, and I counted myself lucky that I have not seen a mirror in thousands of years. 
I realized I'd been staring and cast my eyes down to the ground, to not upset the one piece of beauty left in a world destroyed. But as I did, I felt her touch my broken body. The pains and aches of thousands of years of torment suddenly dissipated. While I felt my bones rebuild themselves and my ruptured organs mend, I heard a soft, melodious voice whisper in my head. Arise. Hearing her speak to me sent a warmth through my body, a warmth that my people haven't felt in eons. I arose, quick to my feet, but kept my eyes down on the ground, still wanting to respect my savior. You are the true we, chosen of the Black King, her beautiful voice whispered through my soul. So many have failed, but you are the one who will bring us Sis back the light. My heart leapt with joy. I was the true chosen. All the pain and torture were quickly forgotten, for I was to be the one who lit the darkness aflame and give the Black King back his empire. The glory itself would be enough for me, but I would be rewarded with riches and land, and maybe even my manhood again. I boldly looked into the empty eyes of the Banshee. If I was the Chosen Knight, why could I not? As I raised my eyes to hers, a smile appeared on her bright red lips that contrasted beautifully to her pale, radiant skin. She leaned close to me, and I felt the heat emanating off her lips as she pressed them against my mouth. It was as if she lit my body ablaze. Another first in ages, I felt passion burn through my body, and any fear I had for my coming trials subsided completely. I knew right then and there I would do anything to feel this every day. No man or beast would stop me from taking back the light. I will do the king's bidding, my lady. My voice crackled and broke over the words, the first of which I've spoken in many sunless days. Her smile seemed to grow brighter as she pointed in a direction behind me. Go, don the armor. Find the gate. Defeat the Taker of Light. Bring us out of the darkness. With that, the Banshee disappeared, back into the void from where she resides. The Taker of Light? Was it someone or something that took the light from our world? How? Why would something exist so cruel as to send millions into inflexible darkness? Whoever or whatever it is, I swear to defeat. I will be the king's chosen knight and bring light and warmth back to my home, if not for me then for the beauty of the Banshee. Newly determined, and the thoughts of the lady's soft caress to keep me warm, I set forth for my destiny. The path before me was a treacherous cobblestone road that weaved through the burnt forest and ended at the abandoned capital. As I took my first steps, the sense of confidence I had while in the Banshee's presence slightly subsided. The darkness is something I am accustomed to, but the eternal blackness that surrounded my hovel sent chills down my spine and filled my soul with a palpable dread. I took a deep breath, feeling air fill my lungs, almost not noticing the lack of rattle in them, and moved forward at a slow pace. I knew the direction I must go, the pilgrimage that I am embarking on is not one we are told of, but one that runs through our blood. The message is clear. Once a knight falls, the Banshee will find the next, until the chosen knight reigns victorious and brings back the light. 
In all my years as a subject of the King, I've heard the Banshee scream thousands of times, always in groups of two. The first signifies a fellow knight has fallen, how I do not know. The second is outside the hut of the next knight in line. Over the few weeks before my selection, I could hear the Banshee getting ever closer, knowing my time to make the journey was close at hand. I forced myself to focus on the mission and no longer dwell on my unpleasant past. I was a new man, the chosen knight to lead the King's Land back to its glory. My focus relit and my pace quickened. I made my way forward, feeling the pull of the gate as my body kept me in the right direction. I edged closer and closer to the burnt forest, my eyes landing on a bulky black chest. The armor. Each knight only had loose rags, befitting of only a peasant. But once they set out on their journey, they were to find the armor of the pilgrimage and wear it into battle against the king's enemies. I ran to the chest, feeling the excitement burn through my body. The chest itself was magnificent. The wood, charred black to match the rest of our world, was engraved with ancient sigils signifying it was the property of the king himself. I fumbled with the rusted metal latch and popped open the top, catching my first glimpse of the armor. It was truly a work of art. The armor was darker than the knight itself, with a hooded skull embossed over crossing swords on the breastplate. The elbow joints and the knee covers had thin, extremely sharp blades running parallel with the arms and legs of the armor, showing it was not only beautiful, but deadly. Like a child on the morning of their birthday, I tore into the chest and started donning the armor. As I tightened the last strap of the leg pieces, my eyes fell on a small latch at the bottom of the chest. I bent over and pulled on it, and the whole bottom gave way to reveal the helm and sword to pair with the rest of the armor. The sword was a true longsword, four feet long with a thick razor-sharp blade. The pommel and hilt were of true artistic design, a leather-wrapped handle, and a pommel decorated by circular black stones. The helm seemed to focus on practicality, designed of black steel with mail on the bottom to cover my neck. As I felt the armor caress my body, a feeling of power surged through me. I felt invincible and able to defeat any foe. I took off running towards the gate, no longer wary of what lurked in the dark, no longer fearing any enemy of the unknown. After running in heavy armor for what felt like an hour, I sat against a protruding stump, catching my breath and enjoying the feeling of air moving freely through my lungs. I removed my sword, relishing in the sharp hiss of steel scaping against the metal scabbard. With the sword held in my lap, I took the time to fully inspect its excellent craftsmanship. I ran my mailed hand against the blade, watching as it opened a small gash in the metal. This was truly a sharp blade, and the one who wields it should not be trifled with. But my attentiveness to the lethality of the weapon almost rendered me ignorant of the markings on the top of the pommel. I picked up a small stick on the ground and scraped the caked dirt that covered up half the letters and saw what was hidden there. She lies. There is no meaning. All a dream. What could this mean? They couldn't be speaking of the Banshee. One so pure could not lie. I shook off the momentary fear and smiled to myself. I looked up and said, A test, my king. My faith will not so easily be broke. Before I could finish my sentence, three figures entered my peripheral. I couldn't quite make them out. 
they were only shadows on the edge of eternal blackness. Who goes there? I bellowed, my confidence waning. I am a knight of the king. You shall not impede my journey. Silence. Whoever or whatever is out there was either scared by my presence or was biding its time to attack. Either way, I knew it was time for me to start moving again. I moved with intensity, but a bit slower due to my knowledge of not being alone. Something in my gut told me I was almost out of the forest, which meant the abandoned capital was the only thing standing between me and the gate. Before my joy peaked, I heard a rustling in front of me. I squinted my eyes and could make out a slightly human, albeit disfigured shape. I said once before you swine, I am not one to be bothered with your trivial pursuits. Again, silence. But this time the figure stood still as two more flanked its position, their movements awkward and shambling. Move out of my way or I will cut you down where you stand. No response then, faint laughter. Fool, you are one of many, hissed one of the figures in front of me. You will fall, burned by the light you don't deserve. It cackled maniacally after insulting me, and before I could respond, a second voice started speaking. Sister, be fair to the knight. He has forgotten his own sins. Would you like being made a fool of for your inability to retain knowledge of your past transgressions? I could feel the sarcasm seep through the hisses. The first monster retorted, You always had a soft spot for these hapless dupes, dear Frida. Let's see if this one deserves to even reach the gate. I'm not sure what this test was, but I removed my sword and readied it for combat. The three figures shambled towards me, quicker this time. As they closed in, I finally got a good look at whom I was facing, and all three were hideous monstrosities. Their faces were horribly malformed, their noses just slits in their face, eyes sewn shut, and their mouths covered in sores. Their approach gave me insight as to why they shambled. The demoness's legs and arms were bent and broken at odd angles. One of them, her arm was removed and the bone sharpened to a point. My God, how could being so corrupted be allowed to live? Brace yourself, whores! My sword will tear you to shreds! I leapt forward, bringing down the crushing weight of my steel on the nearest beast. A shrill sound escaped her putrid lips when my blade skewered her shoulder, the noise reminiscent of the banshee. I placed my booted foot against her midsection and yanked my sword free, bringing with it a thick black blood that stunk of rot and decay. The monster laid on the ground, writhing in pain as her sisters shrieked with rage and fear. The second advanced on me, this one armed with the sharpened bone. You will pay for that knight! The bone blade suddenly extended outwards and slashed towards my face. I brought up my weapon and parried the blow, the metal on bone creating a resounding thud. She came back at me again. This time, however, I was fully ready. I sidestepped gracefully her momentum driving her forward until she tumbled headlong into the ground. Unkempt Quim, you think your untutored violence is a match for an able knight? Before I could finish her off, I felt a sharp pain in my side. I looked down to see a rusted stiletto sticking into my armor. I turned and faced the third sister, this one clearly not as talkative. I laughed in her face, 
It seems you have misplaced your sewing needle, my lady. As I spoke, I yanked the thin blade from my side, tightly gripped the third sister's shoulder, and shoved the stiletto into her exposed stomach. She looked up at me and smiled. Grabbing my hands, she pulled the blade deeper inside herself, while the hole I made in her belly started expanding. The edges of her massive open wound sprouted teeth, and I felt what I thought was a tongue brush across my knuckles. I reeled backwards and quickly smashed my forehead into her face, feeling her bones crunch under my thick metal helm. Her iron grip on my hands let go immediately as her limp body crumpled to the earth. No more monologues for me. I lifted my sword in the air and brought it down with all my might. The demon's head was removed with an audible pop and the wave of stink from the she-beast's rotten blood invaded my nose. Nasty shrew, I mumbled under my breath. Killing my sisters will not help you when you face the light, foe champion, the bone-bladed witch said as she got to her feet. You are nothing. Everything your lady in white told you is a... I wouldn't let her spew her vile heresy any longer. I thrust my blade forward into her neck, covering my sword and newfound armor in her reeking lifeblood. She slumped to her knees as I pulled my steel out and prepared for the finishing blow. You will always be damned. As the last word rose to her revolting lips, she collapsed in a heap of mangled limbs and murky body fluid. It was the first time in millennia I fell someone or something in mortal combat, and the feeling was riveting. I smiled as I wiped away the blood on my sword, relishing in the pain I inflicted on those disgusting wenches. I walked around the area of our skirmish, stabbing my sword into their carcasses, making sure none of them would seek revenge later in my journey. But alas, they were all dead, defeated by the king's champion. I laughed aloud, relishing in my victory, but it was time to move on. I went back to my quickened pace, knowing full well I may run into danger, and part of me was excited to test myself in battle again. Another hour had passed, another hour spent running in my armor. The black metal went from a gift to a burden in only half a day, the weight slowing me down and bringing on a sense of lethargy. But before I could give in to the pull of a short nap, the trees started thinning and my eyes fell on the outline of a great city, the abandoned capital. Back before the light was taken from the Black King's land, the abandoned capital stood as a mighty citadel, defending the territory from the King's enemies. If only I had the time, I would explore every nook and cranny of the great city, but the mission must be completed if we were to ever restore our home. My examination could wait. I gazed on the outline of the city, trying to piece together where I would need to enter to find the gate. Making my survey, I noticed a large hole in the city's great wall. I surmised this would be the best way for me to enter. I took off down the hill, more cautious than ever, not wanting to be noticed by whoever or whatever now populated the capital. I found the wall's gaping wound and pushed through, stopping just a moment to gaze upwards at the massive guard towers and spiraling churches. The city was truly magnificent and I again felt the pull to explore. But my loyalty prevailed, and I took off in the direction of the Grand Portcullis, the gate that will lead my people to freedom. 
I ran down the narrow streets and weaved through long-forgotten merchant stalls, barely able to register the true grandiosity of the city. My heart was still filled with joy, though. I would soon be returning here a hero. But my delight quickly soured. I saw two figures ahead of me, clearly waiting for me to arrive. I slowed my pace, drew my sword, and made my way over to the fools who dared stand in my path. When I felt like I was in hearing distance, I yelled out to the hulking figures, Out of my way, churls! I am here on King's business! The figures stood, unmoved by my resolve. Did you not hear me, Cretans? If need be, I will tear you ap- My words were caught in my throat, and I felt my stomach's contents lurch upward to meet them. The figures I saw were less human than the women of the forest. The closest one stood a hare under five feet tall, its skin drooping from its pudgy face as if it were a candle left to burn. The excess skin pooled around its legs and feet, obscuring the rest of the body from my view. I stopped dead in my tracks and sputtered, What in the king's good name are you? Before I could answer, the second figure shambled forward, revealing its broken form. This one's only commonality with a human was its bipedal nature. The beast had massively long arms, with large spiked claws protruding out from where his hands should be. His face was heavily elongated with the top of his head covered in a jester's crown, covering his eyes. He opened his mouth, exposing row after row of razor-sharp teeth, and spoke in a gritty, metallic voice. King's business? He mocked. You hear this embodiment of pride and egotism, Capsy? The other seemed to shudder in agreement and spat a putrid pus-like substance out of its melted face. The king's dead, and your beloved banshee is just a farce. Your quest is meaningless, and the light will never be yours. This is the second time demons have tried to test me, their lies congruous with each other's. No, my faith will not be broken by these fraudulent curs. Your lies will not stop me from completing my quest, I shall pass through the gate and save the land. I brandished my sword and leapt forward. The candle beast had no time to register my powerful attack, my blade cutting through him like butter, expelling more of the beast's foul secretion onto the ground. The monster let out a pathetic gurgle and fell to the earth. If my quest is a farce, why then, demon, do you and your ilk fall so easily? I can tell you, it is because this is my destiny and nothing will get in my way. The tall monster stepped forward and smiled, showing his rows of pointy fangs. Idiot! You think you are the first? You think your pilgrimage means anything? It means nothing! You are nothing! He screamed and sprang at me, bringing down his sharp talons. I rolled out of the way, feeling the air being parted in front of my face, the monster's claws close to killing me where I stood. I moved backwards, wary of my enemy's speed and length, but not frightened. The beast made another move to attack, but this time I was ready. He lunged forward and I met his steel with mine. The loud twang of metal resounded through the empty homes of the great city and sent us both reeling backwards. He came at me again and again, all of his attacks blocked until he hung back, exhausted from his futile attempts. Tired beast? I mocked. Do you understand now? I am the king's chosen. I will be the bringer of light. The beast smiled his toothy grin again and spoke. Prideful knight, you are clueless. 
When I'm done carving you up, I will feast on your bones. He lunged again, but instead of blocking this time, I rolled forward and thrusted my sword upwards. I felt as the blade pierced his flesh, disemboweling him in one fell swoop. The monster fell to the ground, coughing and sputtering as I moved in for the kill. Any last words, filth? I asked triumphantly. The beast turned his head to look at me. The jester's crown slipped and revealed a set of tired, defeated eyes. I try every time and nothing changes. You will see. This pilgrimage is... is... The beast slumped forward, no longer able to speak. It moaned pathetically one last time and died on the spot it lay. All these demons trying in vain to make me break my faith, I almost feel bad for the louts. But being the king's chosen, I don't have time for pity. Within minutes of my last trial, I was moving swiftly towards the city's edge, finally glimpsing the back walls of the abandoned capital. I climbed a short section of broken wall, landing with a thud on the other side. I dusted the dirt from my armor, and I looked up, seeing the majesty of the gate for the first time. Tears welled in my eyes as I made the final steps towards my faded destination. When I was mere inches from the gate, the feeling of the woman in white's lips grazing mine hit me like a brick. My body shuddered in delight. It was a sign. I have done it. I have completed my pilgrimage. The minute I walk through the gate, the world will have light again. I smiled triumphantly, ripping off my helm and made the step into the gate. Oddly though, the minute my foot went through the portal, all my good feelings dissipated. The pain I felt for thousands of years returned tenfold. I pushed through, thinking this was one last test of faith, but I couldn't be more wrong. As my face passed through the famed gateway, my whole world turned blinding white. My body felt as if it was encapsulated in flame, every inch of me burning, each nerve ending screaming for death. What did I do wrong? I was the chosen one! I screamed aloud. I still couldn't see, but I was not yet willing to give up. I pulled my shattered body to my feet, still screaming in pain. My eyes adjusted slightly, and I could make out movement in front of me. It was her. It was my lady in white here to rescue me. As she got closer, I realized again I was dead wrong. Before, she was the true definition beauty, but here now, in this bright land, she was a hideous and grotesque corpse draped in the white cloak. She opened her mutilated lips and said, This was all a trap. Payment due for your sins in life. I dropped to my knees as it all came back to me. I've done this thousands of times, the same results repeatedly, my pride never letting me see the truth. I looked up at my former goddess and let the tears roll down my face. I quit fighting and let the light burn the rest of my tattered body. The last sound I heard was the banshee scream, signaling a night has fallen. Salvation by Unknown In Edmonton, Alberta, there is a hotel called the Cantera, off of Jasper Avenue and 109th Street. During the night, go here and ring the doorbell. Should you be let in, look to see who the guard on shift is. 
If the man looks in his mid-twenties, yet the hair on his head and face both are white as snow, take a seat beside the security desk. If it is any other guard on shift, leave and return in a week's time. Here you must wait. The guard will say not a word, nor answer any questions you may ask. He hears you, but he will not respond. He will only give you a sad look, as if knowing something terrible awaits. When the time is 2.52 a.m., the guard will rise to perform a patrol of the building. Follow him only on this patrol. If you follow him at any time before 2.52 a.m., you will be forcefully removed from the hotel and lose your chance. Say not a word as you walk the halls behind the guard. He will check that the rooms are all locked, as well as patrol the stairwells. When you both reach the fifth floor, you will notice that it is remarkably colder than the last four. Yes, the floor is deafeningly quiet. It is normal. When the guard secures all the rooms on the floor, you will both stop at a door that seems much older than any other door you've yet seen in the hotel. This is room 512. Only this particular guard has access to this room. Take note of the key of which the guard uses to unlock this door. It will be important later. At this point, the guard will open the room for you and allow you to pass through. It will be quite dark, but do not yet be afraid. The worst is yet to come. Take a deep breath, close your eyes, and step through the doorway. Do not open them until you hear the door close behind you, for seeing the transition can be maddening. It will be almost unbearably hot here. You will find yourself in a long hallway with numerous turns. There will be thirteen doors lining this hallway. Do not open any of them. Take note which door has a splash of white paint on it. This will be critical soon. When you reach the end of the hallway, you will find yourself in the living room of the suite. In each corner of the room you should see tall figures, each with burnt flesh. They should all be sitting on the floor, hugging their legs with their heads upon their knees and facing their respective corner. Their fingers will be chewed away until their tips are nothing but sharp, bony talons. Do not address these figures and do not touch them. They are her guardians. In the center of this room, there she should be. She will be sitting in an old, ragged reclining chair. It is impossible to say how she will look, for her appearance changes for everyone. She should, like her guardians, be asleep. Do not awaken her from her slumber, for now you have time to rest. There will be food and drink set out upon the coffee table in front of her, and you are welcome to it. Do not partake in the pie, however, for it will numb your legs. Should you be so bold, take a look outside the window. It will resemble a hellish version of the avenue which the hotel is on. The buildings will be burnt out husks of their former selves. The river valley beyond will be dry and cracked. Fire will appear to be on the horizon, and the ever-burning sun will resemble blood set ablaze. Should you stay for hours on end, you will find no reprieve from the heat. There is no night here. Now look to the streets. You will find the same figures there as the ones in the room. They, however, are awake, shuffling, screaming, and wailing from their black maws. They have no eyes in their sockets, but by some twisted means they can still see. Take care not to attract their attention, but they will follow you back to our world, and this venture will be for naught. When you are ready, stand before her and speak clearly these words. Save me, mother, please. 
say nothing else and wait. You should start to hear her breathe. At this point, one of two things will happen. Remember the key which the guard opened this room with? Should she place that same key on the table in front of you, count yourself lucky. Should she, however, place a different key upon the table, you will need to give her an offering. A knife that was not previously on the table will now be present. The blade will be rusted, bloodied. Take this knife and sever a finger, placing it beside the key. Wait. If she places the same key as the guards on the table, you may take it and leave. If not, remove another finger. This will only occur a maximum of four times before the right key will be produced. Once the key is in your possession, she will once again return to her haunted slumber. Now pay attention, for you only have a short amount of time. The guardians will be stirring now. Slowly they will rise from their sleep and turn in towards the room to face you. If they see you, they will slaughter you. Run. You have ten seconds before they will fully turn from their corners. Remember that door with the white splash of paint? That is the door you will need to use to remove yourself from this hell. If you hear screaming from behind you, the Guardians are fully awake and are coming. You don't have much time. Find the white-marked door and get out. You will find yourself inexplicably outside your own home exactly a week after you entered the hotel. Keep the key on you at all times, wherever you go. One day in the future, distant or near, a ragged old door with the number 777 will appear, wherever you happen to be. Use the key and open this door immediately. Leave anyone with you behind. Wherever it leads, it will be far better than what is about to happen to this world. The Beast in the Night by Unknown. Sometimes I can hear it pacing around my bed. It's kinda in a hurried motion, as if he had more than two feet. Which he doesn't. I know because sometimes I catch a glimpse of him. He looks a bit anorexic if he's even human. For all I know, he could have been buff for his kind if there is any more of his kind. God, I hope not. His mouth is wider than anything I've ever seen. I think he either broke his jaw or has no jaw. Another thing that doesn't help the fact is that his large, gaping hole of a mouth is accompanied by two beady eyes with black skin surrounding them. Another thing that I know is that he is blind. I once met his eyes, but he turned as if I wasn't there. I try to meet his eyes a lot, but I get no response. What makes up for his loss of eyesight? Is his sensitive hearing. Once my cat jumped off of the couch and the beast heard it from my room, he bolted out of my room and then silence. The next day my cat was found dead in the backyard and they all thought a coyote or a stray dog had killed it. I could only make out a huge human-like bite mark under its torso. He had killed it. He had to have. I've never seen anything that could make a bite so large. All I could say is that a coyote could not have possibly created such a huge bite. Tonight was a different night. I had to sneeze, and I did, but the pillow muffled it. I didn't think he noticed. He just turned and scratched my closet door. At least, that's what I thought he was doing. After a while, it seemed as if he was writing something. To my amazement, he was. I started freaking out once I lost sight of him in the darkness. 
The only thing that calmed me was the complete silence. My pupils dilated and I could see in the dark. I saw in the corner where he once crept to, and he wasn't there. Then I heard at the foot of my bed a growl, like an angered dog's growl. My heart sunk deep into my chest, and my heart rate must have slowed down a lot. Even after this, I dare not move. As it crawled slowly, closer to my face, I read its message, carved into my closet door. I heard you. The Beginner's Guide to Contacting a Cryptid by Bucket 28 I thought I'd share a small legend that occasionally makes its way around town where I live. There's a lot of dense forests here in the Seattle area, and people like to tell stories about a tall, hairy creature that walks between the trees at night. There's lots of Bigfoot rumors around here, but they say it's definitely something else, more like the Michigan Dogman or some kind of werewolf. The big difference is that it has an animal skull for a face with sharp rows of teeth and large, empty eye sockets. Or at least that's what people say. See, the thing is that the legend says it doesn't like to be watched, and it recognizes and avoids all kinds of cameras. Convenient, I know. This, combined with other details that I'll mention later, leads me to believe that this cryptid could have been a regular person at some point. Anyways, the story goes that it lives deep in the forests near Seattle and Bellevue, watching hikers from a distance and feeding off of deer and wild berries. These food sources can be inconsistent though, which leads to the main risk that I'll get into after the instructions. Most reported sightings are around Coal Creek, so that's probably where you'd want to go if you're looking for it. That's also where it gets its most common name, the Coal Creek Demon. Some people say that it's a vengeful spirit from the long-lost mining settlement that used to be there, but that sounds a bit too melodramatic to me. I'd say it's probably the result of some freak accident, but I'm not a scientist or anything, so who knows? There's no real reward for encountering this so-called demon that I've heard of, but if you want to seek it out anyways, here's what you need to do. Results are far from guaranteed. It can only be in one place at once, and it doesn't live to serve your interests. If nothing else, it's a fun excuse to go camping with some friends. Required supplies. To conduct this ritual, you'll need a gift, described below, camping equipment, flashlights, blindfolds, a remote activated light source. Some of these items are only necessary for certain approaches, so you can read ahead and decide what exactly you need to bring. Instructions. Step 1. Prepare a gift. This could be a metal token or some kind of trinket, but it's usually recommended to bring a nice meal consisting of red meat and berries. This is a very important step, because without a gift, it most likely won't show up, and if it does show up, you need to leave immediately. Step 2. Set up camp deep in the woods. If you can still see lights from other structures, you aren't far enough. You'll want to go in the late evening so that you can set everything up just before sunset. Step 3. Put away all recording devices and limit your light sources to your flashlights. You can also start a fire as long as it doesn't burn too bright. The idea here is to create a welcoming environment while also maintaining a protected area. Step 4. Set up your remote activated light source a few feet away from the edge of your camp and place your gift next to it. Keep the light switched on for now. Step 5. Sit back 
and relax. Once the sky is pitch black, you just need to wait for a sign. Feel free to chat and play games with anyone you brought along with you, just as long as you all have a clear view of the tree line. Step 6. Eventually, you might realize that something is observing you from a distance. It could be a tall shadow in the distance, the snapping of foliage, a sudden unnatural silence, or just the feeling of being watched if you believe in that sort of thing. If you notice any of these signs, it could very well mean that you've made contact. You're now ready to move on to the next step. Step 7. Stop all conversation and reduce your noise as much as possible. Switch off the light next to your gift and make sure your flashlights are pointed away from it. This is also where you need to pay close attention to these instructions, as any mistake past this point will cause the demon to panic, which can have very dangerous consequences. Step 8. The demon should now approach your gift slowly. Stay calm and avoid any noises or sudden movements. Do not shine a light on it or take out any recording devices. If everything is done correctly, it will take the gift and briefly gaze at the people in your camp. However, if it ignores your gift and instead starts moving toward your camp, you need to get up and run to the nearest shelter you can find. Your lights will no longer matter, so just focus on moving as fast as possible. If you can't find anything nearby, try to hide in the surrounding foliage. According to all known recollections, it can run much faster than any human, so whatever you do, do it fast. This is the point at which most would be content to stop, so if you've had enough, just stay in place until it makes a small bowing motion with its head and walks back into the forest. But if you're an idiot like my friend, you can continue through these next steps and potentially get a much closer encounter. I don't recommend it. In my opinion, you're just asking for trouble by now. Step 9. While this creature is near your camp, quickly eliminate all sources of light and put on your blindfolds. This is where it comes in handy to be using flashlights, since turning them off is much easier than dousing a fire. Step 10. The demon will now feel free to explore your camp and inspect you up close. You'll hear it rummaging through your supplies and pacing around you. You might even feel its breath on your face, but you need to remain calm and stay still, and whatever you do, do not remove your blindfold. This creature is known to be relatively passive towards humans if unprovoked, but if you happen to hear any sudden sounds of distress from your friends, immediately evacuate the area as described earlier. Step 11. Wait until it loses interest and walks away. Once you can no longer hear its footsteps, you're free to take off your blindfolds and turn your lights back on. You've now stood face to face with a cryptid and lived to tell the tale, so you've got some bragging rights with anyone who's willing to believe you. Like I said, there's no big reward, so it's mostly just about having the experience. Important Notes Now let's talk about the risks here. As you may have assumed by now, Stories say that it has an occasional tendency to eat people, so there's that. However, based on my research, it seems to only do this when starved or provoked, so you don't have to worry as long as you play it smart. If anything, you should feel bad for the hikers who randomly run into this thing with no preparation. I'd recommend going out during the summer or early fall, since that's when the blackberries are in season and the wildlife is most active. That's just my theory. 
but most of the darker stories I've heard take place during winter, so I'd say it holds some water. Now, like I said earlier, there's a chance that you could startle the demon and cause it to panic. I believe this is usually caused by it suddenly being caught in clear view by a person, so that's why you don't want to shine a light on it or try to record it. If it panics, then it will either run off in a hurry or attack the person watching it, mostly depending on how far away it is. That's why it's a stupid idea to let it walk around your camp, because one mistake could be enough to put you on a missing persons poster. Past Encounters Because of the positive reception to this post, I decided to do some more research on this thing. I found a lot of neat stuff, but there's too many stories to go over them all, so I'll just cover the big ones. The Case of Brian Matthews So back in 2004, this kid found himself in a bad situation, and I'm not just talking about him having two first names. At the age of nine, he's out on a hike with his parents, when suddenly they turn around, and he's just gone. I don't know what they were doing having him at the back of the line, but that's not the point here. Obviously, they immediately panic and run around yelling to him, and when that didn't work, they went to the police. Within a few hours, park rangers were sweeping the area, and after two days with no results, they brought in the National Guard. While they're out searching on day three, the kid turns up, but not with the cops. Instead, a group of backpackers find him sitting on a tree stump, 20 miles north from where he went missing. When they brought him in, he was healthy and well-fed. When asked where he'd been, he just said that he was playing with a friendly bear he'd met. When shown an artist's sketch of the Coal Creek Demon, Brian immediately identified it as the creature he was talking about. Articles quote him as saying, Did you meet him too? When he first saw the sketch. In my opinion, this is a pretty big boon for the ex-human theory unless there's some species of wild animal that just so happens to have a habit of caring for human children like a parent would. Stephen's Camping Trip Now, as I mentioned briefly, my friend Stephen carried out this whole process and ended up getting in over his head. At the time, we were both graduating high school, and he went on a camping trip with some other seniors to celebrate. I would have joined, but I was down with COVID at the time, so that was a no-go. Besides, I wanted to give him some space since I knew he had feelings for one of the people going. I should have seen it coming that he would do something stupid to try and impress her and screw up massively. The group was telling scary stories around the campfire one night, so he brought up this ritual, and of course some of the people wanted to try it. He didn't want to look like a wuss, so he just went along with it. Once they started to get things rolling, most of the group checked out and walked down to the beach instead, including his crush. It was way too late for him to back out by then, so he'd just won the award for world's biggest backfire. So at this point, it's almost pitch black outside. The four remaining people are putting beef jerky on a paper plate, and Stephen's just trying to keep his pants dry. They sit out with the plate for a while, and just as they're about to call it quits, the thing actually shows up. Everyone there is totally paralyzed, but they still move on to dousing the fire and wrapping bandanas over their eyes. I can only assume their brains were just running on autopilot by that point. Now it's pacing around the camp, slowly rustling through their bags and inspecting them one at a time. When it gets to Jack, this really wiry kid with red hair, 
Apparently, its breath hits his face and makes him jump in his seat, shaking off his blindfold in the process. The whole group hears a dry shriek and takes off their blindfolds just in time to see him get thrown into the tree line, and they all bolt out of there. Stephen went and ducked behind a big log, spending about 20 minutes huddling in a ball and freaking out. When he heard footsteps approaching, he thought he was done for, only to see that it was the rest of the group coming back from the beach. He ran up to them and started incoherently rambling about what was going on, but he realized that the demon was completely gone. Imagine walking back from the beach only to find the people you left there cowering in shrubbery and rambling about a giant monster that isn't there. I wouldn't even know what to think. Of course they didn't believe them, even though Jack was covered in bruises and scratches. I guess they thought it was some sort of elaborate prank and they just ended up being pissed. I wouldn't believe him either if it weren't for the fact that I know he could never orchestrate something like that if he tried. Overall, it was a very bad night for Stephen. The Stalker Program by Siver Bunny. It was a Saturday, more precisely, the 10th of November, which I remember distinctly. It was the first day I felt the approaching winter cold soaring through the suburbs, and I pulled my hands back at the near-freezing metal, the mailbox. The letter had a government stamp on it, and I almost tripped over the stairs as I couldn't pull my eyes away from it until I was inside. I also remember that date, because it was the first weekend we spent at home after a lengthy honeymoon, which had been no less than perfect. Hawaii, waking up from the ocean clashing with the coast. We had gotten matching tattoos that we would probably regret later, a small wave etched into his and my wrist. I saw it again when he removed the letter from my hand, appearing as puzzled as I was. Huh? Did you get into trouble? He joked while nonchalantly ripping open the paper with his thumb. I was on my toes behind his shoulder, like a kid at the movies, attempting to catch a glimpse at the small font. It said, Congratulations, in slightly larger letters, and then, You have been selected to take part in our exclusive program. And that's where I stopped reading, thinking it a scam or some other kind of malignant practice. Throw it in the trash, I advised him, but his stare was still stuck on the paper, transfixed which left me with a weird feeling. No, he mumbled, more to himself. Faster and faster, his eyes traced over the lines. No, look, it's official. He pointed at the stamp, a faint blue seal that seemed familiar. Moreover, it was printed on hard, thick paper that gave it some kind of perceived integrity. At this point, I was getting impatient, simply grabbing the letter from his hands and skimming over it. Surveillance program. Only few select citizens to participate. Please assemble at town hall, 12 p.m. How odd. It slipped from me, but I couldn't find anything strikingly dubious about the contents. It was true. Public surveillance had been announced to undergo a massive expansion this year, if one were to believe the government's promises. They wanted coverage in all public places, to cut down crime rates, track missing persons, and so on. It was nothing that interested me much, but apparently new technology was being developed that was made out to be a big deal if the specifics were ever released. Only a testing program I hadn't heard of, but it was not rare for surveys and in-person testing to take place rather secretively until the results were ready for presentation. 
Usually we'd toss those letters and invitations, but something about it had seemed to pique my husband's interest. They're testing something new, huh? Probably technology-related. He paced around the room, an idea in his mind taking shape. Sounds interesting. It's tomorrow already. You want to go? I probed. I suppose he didn't want me to notice, but he was definitely agitated about the prospect. He had always loved fiddling with electronics and was up to date with that surveillance campaign. On multiple occasions, he tried to enlighten me on the possibilities it could open up, but I had forgotten most of that. It was a topic I listened to out of courtesy, not really interest. Hey, I know it's your thing. We can check it out if you want. I tried to reassure him. Really? His eyes lit up a bit, then he seemed bothered by something, checking the letter again. There's a problem, he muttered. What is it? It's addressed to me. Only me. No problem. I'll stay home. Wouldn't want to interfere with anything. It was a decision I would painfully regret. Nothing had been said about the time frame or the proceedings of the project. That's why it didn't worry me when three hours passed with no message, and I only grew marginally impatient after five. The most comforting of fantasies I spun in my mind. It's an official thing, I thought. Phones won't be allowed. They might have a buffet after, or simply long waiting times. But the clock mercilessly ticked on, and when the sun had set, I was reduced to a nervous bundle, pacing from window to window in between fruitless attempts at calling his number. It was impossible to sit here and wait. I had to see for myself. He had taken the car, so I was left to traverse the distance to the town center by myself. It was luckily not far, but the nighttime and freezing cold added to my discomfort. It didn't help that a lingering feeling arose in me. At first I pushed it away attributing it to my anxiety given the situation. But I kept turning my head to all directions, almost frantically. It was as if there was someone observing me. The sound of my footsteps seemed to multiply, coming from everywhere at once. But my mind must have only been playing a trick on me. I walked faster until I was nearly running, away from some invisible danger. Dark treetops obscured my sight on the neighborhood, and it was as if the whole world had fallen silent except for me. I reached the town hall out of breath, but immediately felt a wave of relief rush through my body as I spotted the car. It was painted a glaring red. I hated the color, but just for a moment, I was so glad to see it. I checked there first, attempting to make out the inside through the panes, everything just like I remembered it, but no trace of him. Then I had no choice. I approached the mighty building passing by the old architecture and grabbed the handle with determination. I pulled and the door wouldn't give way, adamantly pushing back at me. In disbelief, I tried again and again to no avail. I felt tears welling up in my eyes. Never had I imagined myself here. Images shot through my mind, abductions, murder cases, crime scenes. I needed to calm down. There would be an explanation. Somewhere. Someone. Trying to take in a few deep breaths of the nightly air, I let my eyes wander. This part of town was scarcely visited, especially at nighttime. It was no surprise the streets remained empty. Tall lamps had been set up, making the road faintly visible. Security cameras had newly been mounted on some of them, 
as well as on the fence rows behind. Their bleak, shimmering eyes stared back at me. Only one stood out. I squinted so as to fix my stare on it. It was quite distant from me, but without doubt exactly lined up with my position. Somewhat unnerved by the idea of being recorded loitering around the town hall at night, I quickly moved past it, keeping it in my sight. But with every step I went, it seemed to follow me. I tested it, taunted it, repeatedly changing direction, and the lens turned with a mechanical jerk wherever I went. They didn't do that. They never did. It made no sense for a camera to have a motion sensor pointing to a frequented road. Nothing made any sense at all. I felt dread rising up in my body, the urgent need to leave this place, fast. I ran an odd curve to move out of the camera's scope of movement, but it wouldn't be as easy as that. To my horror, the black, emotionless glare of the lens rose up, far above the fence I had thought it attached to. Shadows were still coating it in obscurity, but soon enough it expanded in my field of view, moving towards me briskly and shakily. A man stepped out of the shadow, unmistakably, a grown human that walked just the slightest bit too unnaturally, almost automatically. Instead of a head, a security camera was mounted on his neck, twitching to keep up with my movement. It was faster than me. I wouldn't make it across the parking lot and back home. It was already too late to even try to escape to either side of me. I had no idea what that thing would do to me if it caught me, but I was in no mood to find out rather shaken by a visceral fear. I felt my way along the facade, scurrying across the side of the building while keeping the creature in sight. It took long, coordinated strides that were faster than I could possibly run. I almost stumbled over my own feet, concrete scraping along my palms. Suddenly, they fell into emptiness. I tripped sideways into a narrow gap between adjacent buildings. In the darkness, it couldn't be said whether it led anywhere but the approaching steps sounding faster and harder moved me to run further into the unknown alleyway. I was squeezed in between the backside of the town hall and an apartment complex next to it. There was no light to illuminate my way, but it can't have been long until I reached a dead end. I had gained a small lead, enough to adjust my eyes to my surroundings. My hands brushed over harsh wire mesh to my right, where I had presumed only the town hall's cold concrete to be. But there was a small gate inset into a fence that led to a flight of stairs and further down into what must be the building's basement. I rattled the door without thinking, only to discover it was held in place by a heavy lock. It would have been too tall to climb over. Besides, barbed wire was spun across its full length, which I might have seen as odd had I had time to think. I turned my attention away from the fence as escape seemed to wait right in front of me. The alley ended in a head-high brick wall over which I could catch a glimpse of the next road and even a few apartments in the distance that had light shine through their windows. If I made it there, I could call for help. The thought was what drove me to grab the ledge with both hands and cram my feet in the numerous gaps to push myself up. The task took so much of my strength that I hadn't noticed it. Footsteps behind me. It had caught up. For a moment I thought myself safe slowly climbing upwards until it occurred to me that something still half-human could climb, too. Its limbs found creases to hold onto, and its fingers stretched after me. Just barely, I made the final step and was able to pull myself up to stand. 
Right next to me, it did the same. The thing used that moment to leap at me. Within a split second, I had to make a choice. It would follow me, even if I jumped. It would follow me everywhere. I saw my leg cut through the air, hit its metal head with full force. The creature stumbled back as the camera's encasing cracked. Just once more, I thought. Then I could push it off the other side and hopefully damage it enough to put it out of order. But I failed. My second kick was flung through thin air, just past its goal. It gave the camera enough time to readjust and start its attack. I was pushed over, lucky not to fall off the wall entirely. It held me down, a human hand wrapped around my neck, but my eyes staring at an unmoving lens. It squeezed firmly enough to hold me in place, but didn't seem to hurt me. Entirely still, I felt sucked in by the black void in place of its face. The aperture narrowed. It was as if it was squinting at me. In reality, the camera was adjusting to the darkness. Click. My sight was coated in a painful flash that turned everything a glaring white for a matter of seconds. When slowly but surely the world returned to normal, there were sharp contrasts that stuck out. One of them was a mark on the arm right in front of me, dark ink against his pale skin, a small wave with pronounced lines just recently done. It startled me more than anything I had seen so far. He let go of me to retreat into the darkness. I, however, stumbled back in my own confusion, not to either side, but backwards through barbed wire that cut into my skin, holding up my fall until I landed another meter deeper on the opposite side of a locked fence. It felt like minutes lying there in silence, with the painful sensation of thorns that dug into me. I experienced it vividly when I made my first attempts at getting up, shooting through every part of my body, small trails of blood that had dried across my arms. Oh shit, was the first thing I said to myself, into the silence, reminding me of how alone I was, and now also trapped. An obvious option would have been to wait until morning, here in the cold with no guarantee of anyone hearing my calls for help, even if the stores nearby opened. A more appealing option was to breach the door right to my feet, leading into some part of the town hall. People might still be at work there. He might be there. What I just saw couldn't be right. It must have been an illusion of my tired mind. Nothing else made sense. I somehow convinced myself that he was there. He was all right. I only had to go in. To my surprise, the door wasn't locked. They must have thought the gate would suffice in keeping unwanted visitors out. Inside, as expected, was pitch-black darkness. I rummaged through my pockets for a light source, but my phone was at home, happily sitting on the kitchen counter. I must have forgotten it in the haste and now scolded myself for it. There was no other choice than to feel my way along the walls. They were cold, adamant, and dirty. Probably just a basement, maybe an archive of some sorts. I was proven wrong when my fingers found a switch. Fluorescent lights flickered spanning across the ceiling and gave sight to a large storage hall. It was incredibly bleak and boring in here. As I approached the middle of the room, the sound of my steps echoed back from the walls. Big cardboard boxes were stacked up to each side of me, that was all. Because I couldn't find a reason why not, I decided to take a look inside. I withdrew my head with a gasp. They contained piles of large security cameras 
similar to something I had already seen. Frantically, I opened every box within my reach, but they all held the same contents. Detached cameras, dozens and dozens, cable ends sticking out of them, ready to be assembled. What was happening here? I wouldn't find answers unless I descended further into the building, and the next door was already in sight. Taking a deep breath, I opened it, reaching a long corridor. There were plenty of rooms to either side of it, some with windows, some with light in them. I was now in danger of being spotted. Normally, I should have ran up to the first sign of human activity I could see, but something was telling me I wasn't supposed to be here. So I decided to keep it down and slowly crouched along the hallway, occasionally peeking through the glass panes. They all seemed like common office rooms with a few people sunken in their work inside, scribbling down something or working on their laptops. It seemed normal enough to give me some relief. Still, I didn't knock. I felt like a criminal. Some explaining would be due if I was found in here, and I certainly wasn't ready for that. Through another door, I could hear distant chatter. I was too curious not to listen in. There might be information on the program on the whereabouts of the testers, anything. But I was disappointed as the two men's conversation seemed to revolve only around mundane topics, TV shows, family life, and the approaching end of their shifts. Either they were ordinary workers with no involvement in the letters, or I had caught them at an unlucky time. I was ready to move on, when suddenly, one of them was interrupted in the middle of a sentence. It was the ringing of his phone. Uh-oh, orders from the boss, he jokingly exclaimed. From then on, I could only follow one side of the conversation and listened as the men's voices grew increasingly concerned, almost frightened. Escaped? I could hear. And then, if it's only a couple witnesses, we can easily gloss over it. Something was definitely wrong here. No, we'll find him, don't worry. Sending out a team right now. They listened to some more instructions through the phone line until the call fell silent. Fuck, man, one of them muttered, and the other joined in. Over time, it is again, then. I suddenly realized that they would leave the room, forcing me to withdraw with no time to process what I had heard. Footsteps approached faster than I could have reached an end to the corridor. I had no choice but to enter a windowless room to my side. As quietly as possible, I closed the door behind me. With a sigh of relief, I realized there was nobody in my vicinity. Voices again. An adjacent door was flung open. I crouched behind a shelf I spotted just in time, frozen in place, overseeing the entirety of the room. Luckily, everyone's back was turned to me, allowing me to observe in peace. It was no office room, no tables, chairs, laptops. Instead, a sort of surgical table, equipped with the according instruments. I held my breath. My mind spun circles trying to make a sense of the scenery. Surrounding it were three figures in sterile gowns. One seemingly the head of the operation, an elderly man with a slumped over posture, grayed out hair peeking out from under the white surgeon's cap. To his side were two younger assistants, giving him a hand in his tasks. And what were they doing now? They removed some kind of tarp covering from that table, replacing it with a clean one. This was necessary, because the sheet one of the men held and quickly rolled up was glossed over with a visible layer of blood, and it was unmistakably blood. I would be fooling myself trying to assume anything else. This would all be perfectly normal, 
had I gotten lost in a hospital, but not here. A basement locked away underneath Town Hall, the same place I presumed my husband to be. They left the scene all at once. I stayed down and kept my shaky breaths quiet, just in case, and I had been right. They returned within seconds and not alone. With swift step, a hospital bed was rolled in, carrying a lifeless woman's body. She might not have been dead, but entirely unconscious. Her limp body was lifted up and spread out on the tarp. I felt nausea rising up in me. I didn't want to be here. I shouldn't. But leaving now was no option. Opening the door was guaranteed to give away my presence. Looking away also didn't occur to me. It was like any horror scenario. Nothing could have torn my eyes away from the gruesome events about to unfold. The old doctor released a long sigh, as if he was about to follow through with a mundane part of his daily routine. Without wavering, he picked up a long, hefty object. An axe. A surgical axe, if you could call it that. It was polished clean and with a thin, fan-shaped blade that was sharp enough to see the edge even from a distance. My eyes were transfixed. I believe I didn't even breathe. It was like a scene that usually cuts away just at the right moment, but this one didn't. I saw everything. It looked unreal. Have you ever seen something like this? Not on the internet, I mean. Right in front of you. At first, it feels like a cartoon, unreal and harmless, but still striking enough to remember every detail. It was odd how clean and swift it happened, barely a sound. The man looked like he didn't even have to try. The blade seemed to fall by itself, severing the head effortlessly. It was caught by his assistant who carried it away. I followed it with my eyes. The head of a woman who seemed so alive, as if she could start talking in an instant. I couldn't possibly process the fact that it was detached. It looked entirely normal for a moment. After that initial moment, you'll realize, and you might throw up all over yourself. I prevented that, luckily, because I was still painfully aware of my intruding. They immediately tended to the cut, stopping the bleeding, attaching something I couldn't quite recognize until the third man returned, not carrying a head, but something close to it. A camera. I watched paralyzed as they completed her, attaching wires to nerves, engineering her artificial brain. It might have taken hours or minutes. My perception of time was entirely lost at this point. Somewhen, the team stepped away from the table, observing their creation. A jolt went through the creature. They all nodded in satisfaction, and it gave me the feeling this exact scene had transpired many, many times before. It was finished. They seemed to be waiting for something to happen. It might have gotten up by itself, proving their success. It might have been supposed to do all kinds of things, but I saw none of that. Instead, with a single clicking motion, the camera turned from where it was lying, facing sideways. It was staring across the room, directly at a pair of widened eyes that reflected in its lens. The last thing I saw in my human life was the image of a sharpened blade rushing at me, the dull eyes of a man to whom I was just another subject as my final conscious thoughts were cut off. Welcome to the stalker program, said the screen that was my sole mind. Congratulations, you have been selected. A picture of a woman appeared, unknown to me. This is your target, observe at all times. 
blinking dots showed up in the depths of my mechanical conscience that I could not quite see but feel. I knew where she was. I knew I would be watching her. Forever. Disturbed minds as the sinister echoes of our tales linger in the recesses of your consciousness, we bid you farewell for now. The shadows retreat, allowing a brief respite before the next descent into the unknown. As Thanksgiving approaches, may your feasts be bountiful, your company be eerie yet comforting, and your gratitude profound. From the depths of our disturbed hearts to yours, we wish you a holiday drenched in both warmth and the chilling embrace of the unknown. Reflect on the twisted tales that have woven their tendrils into your thoughts, and let the shivers of our narratives be the seasoning to your festive gatherings. Remember, the darkness never truly sleeps, and it eagerly awaits your return. Stay connected, stay disturbed, and stay tuned. The Disturbed Mind podcast shall return next Monday with more stories to unravel and nightmares to sow. Until then, have a Thanksgiving that leaves you both disturbed and grateful. Thank you for allowing us into the corridors of your consciousness. Happy Thanksgiving, and remember, the shadows are always eager to embrace you once more.